0: The good friends of Jackson Elias would like to thank our backers for funding the podcast. If you would like to become a good friend of the good friends of Jackson Elias, just follow the Patreon link from blasphemoustones.com. Here's a
1: Japanese sneaking on with a Just an old second-hand man buy your old days from you He will take every sorrow, of the day that is through, and he'll bring you tomorrow, just to start life anew. What the hell? I'm trying not to ask.
0: (laughs) I'll try not to hit you with a champagne cork, Lucy. (laughs) So we have. Are we gonna. This this is gonna be a one take because I've only got one bottle of champagne. You started it with a so. (laughs) And in other news, two years. We've
1: been going for two years, am I right? Yes, just about. We started on, I believe, the 7th of June 2013. So, at the time of recording, we're just a few days shy of that, but it's as close to two years as damn it.
2: Yay, Yay. boy. Time flies.
1: Yep, and get that bloody champagne cork out Don't of my me face, no, 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 no. hold <laughs> 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 your glass nearer. For, for the mic, we have a bottle of uh,
0: bottle of bubbly that's a weapon. So do it on your
1: nah. side. <laughs> <laughs> oh, someone's be going fine. to lose an idea. Just here. put your
0: glass here.
1: Stretch your her arm I'm, out. I'm, I'm frightened. Don't be frightened. You ready? No. There we go. Two sound, years sound on. Sound effect
0: time, come on. Wait.
2: It went somewhere. It yeah. went somewhere. I'm sure you've got a hole in your wall now.
1: <laughs> I, I believe I squealed like a little girl. There we go. Yeah. Hey. I
0: don't know if the mic's picking up the bubbles. Don't, don't get it. the mic wet. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. <laughs> oh, it's all bubbles. So, um, I'll pull one out for you, mm-hmm. Lucy, who's taking uh, photographs. Well, cheers, gentlemen, and cheers to all our listeners. Indeed. Yes. Well, to many more years of podcasting and talking general rubbish stuff. <laughs> we, we, we can manage at least one of those. Give us an inspirational uh, speech, Scott um yeah yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> i was just gonna go with "Ia cthulhu fatagan <laughs> can't beat that
0: well cheers everybody cheers. cheers hello and welcome to the good friends of jackson Elias, a regular podcast about call of cthulhu horror films and horror gaming in general i'm paul fricker i'm scott dalwood and i'm matt sanderson in this week's news, you're going to Games Expo, Scott. Or indeed, when this comes out, you will have been to Games Expo. So do you want to do it as if you're going or you're coming back?
1: I, I don't know where I am at the best of times. Don't, don't, don't confuse me, do doesn't boys. know if he's coming or going. Yeah. But what's happening at Games Expo? Uh, lots of stuff, apparently. You're running games? <laughs> I am. I'm running lots of games. I was going to say many. Um, uh, yes, I believe I'm down to run seven games.
0: Wall to wall.
1: Yes. And only one of them isn't a Cthulhu game. Uh, I'm running World War Cthulhu, uh, Call of Cthulhu, Pop Cthulhu, Trail of Cthulhu, and Hot War. And are you all prepared, Scott? I am. Shockingly, I actually have almost all of my scenarios written. I'm just putting the finishing touches to the last one now. And I have never been this prepared for a convention in my life.
0: Who is who is this person and why is he looking like Scott? I know well, <laughs> this is very strange so I, I can't compute this so you're you're prepared
1: I am I it helps that I'm mostly running stuff that I've run at other conventions before yeah. but even or, then, or cheating
0: as we know it yes yes <laughs> but, but, or, or indeed being sensible yeah
1: yeah but so I mean some of them are revised some of them are relatively new or things that I've only run once at concrete cow and, yeah, at least one of them is going to be brand new. Cool. Your character sheet's even printed? Oh,
2: fuck no. Ah, ah there's the door <laughs> we know. So <laughs> you mean you haven't
1: laminated them yet? <laughs> yes, yeah, so that, that's because some of us don't run games where we need wipe clean character sheets. Why are you looking at We them? are all looking at Matt now. <laughs> Matt
0: is famed for his uh, preparation... And his lamination of the character sheet. If,
1: if, if you ever play a game with Matt, with one of his laminated character sheets, show your appreciation for the game at the end by licking your character sheet clean.
2: Ugh. Saves Matt a job. <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to say, after some people doodle all over them, and one does, you're using up all the ink in the dry white marker. What the fuck? <laughs> Come on.
1: <laughs> I, I can think of worse things to have to clean off the sheet. <laughs>
2: But I, I mainly did it because then I don't have to reprint the sheets all the time. I just wipe and clean. And in other news, featuring one of our regular listeners, hello, Ollie. Um, yeah, one of the other members of the MKRPG crew, um, Ollie Palmer, just had his first publication.
0: Hey, congratulations, Ollie. Yeah, the Washerwoman Statue in issue five
1: of the Undercroft, an OSR magazine. Yeah, this is a cursed item which Ollie wrote for Lamentations of the Flame Princess. Uh, Which he's explained to me in depth, which sounds really bloody cool. Mm, Cursed item. Do you want one? Um, Only to give away as a gift. (laughs) It's every. It's a gift every GM wants
0: to give to their players. So if you're a player and you get it, your best bet is to give it to one of the other players, and then run away.
1: I don't think, think that helps you, does it? Yeah, I think by that stage it's too late. I, it's it's a classic lamentations of the flame princess magic item. If you ever played lamentations and you're given a magic item, you're fucked.
0: So you do you get the items and you do detect magic to make sure they're not magical. Pretty much, yes. Right, is this book safe to pick up?
1: No way, it Maybe. might
0: have spells.
1: Run away. It's very much like Call of Cthulhu in that respect. Right. You, you might get the occasional thing that will give you some little positive bonus, but it's going to have a downside. And the downside has got to be really, really nasty. Well, at the time of recording, we've got a bit of news that's just come in about Chaosium.
2: Indeed, it was first announced on the Kickstarter updates for both um, Orange Express and for 7th Edition. Um, pretty much at the same time, they posted to one and then they posted to the other, saying that the Great Old Ones themselves had
1: returned. Yep, yeah, we're talking about Greg Stafford and Sandy Peterson returning to Chaosium after many years in the wilderness. Yeah, and good news that Mike Mason's still going to be there as line editor of Call of Cthulhu. Excellent, yeah, we wouldn't feel right without Mike.
0: Indeed.
2: As said, this is fairly, well, this is news for us at the time of recording, so that's pretty much all that's out in the public domain at the moment. So, anything from here on in, we'll obviously keep you updated and post on the blog as and when stuff comes up.
0: And now, the
1: Lovecraftian Word of the Week.
0: And the word this week is... Rugos. We had a fair bit of debate on how to
2: actually pronounce this, didn't we?
1: Yeah. Apparently, I've been pronouncing it wrong all these years, or alternatively, the online pronunciation guide that I looked at today is wrong. I've always pronounced it rugos.
0: Or the online, or you misinterpreted the online pronunciation guide because I can never understand those things.
1: Oh, uh, no. This was actually an audio clip.
0: Ah. Oh, that's just cheating. Mm. So, what does rugos mean, Scott?
1: It means sort of. Well. Crinkly
0: because it is one of those words that you know I read in a Lovecraft story and it kind of adds a bit of color, but I don't always really know what it actually
1: means. Yeah, it's a word that's got a lot of technical use in various sciences, uh, particularly in botany, entomology, paleontology. but uh, it really does just mean sort of corrugated, uh, wrinkled,, uh, you know, possessing lots of ridges, that kind of thing.
0: I can see here from your note that it says used in botany to mean ridges on leaves.
1: Yes, or
0: Klingon's forehead.
1: I'm not entirely sure. You know, I mean, to be pedantic, that a Klingon's forehead would be rugose because that tends to be smooth lines as opposed to the sort of uh, almost maze-like structure that you see in in the wrinkles on certain leaves. I oh, thought it was. They said they described them as having ridges. Yeah, but I think it. it Oh, we're, getting it, we're really getting into it now. <laughs> but I think it's a, a very specific type of, of ridges where they form a sort of intermeshing pattern as opposed to just, like, straight lines. Maybe, maybe a Klingon that's got a migraine. <laughs> Amigo's head. Yeah, that, that would be Rugo's.
2: From The Shunned House... It was all eyes, wolfish and mocking, and the Rugo's insect-like head dissolved at the top to a thin stream of mist which curled putridly about and finally vanished up the chimney.
0: And from out of the aeons...
1: Eons. It's pronounced fucking Eons. Yeah! He's not uh... just
0: me! (laughs) Sorry. And from out of the aeons...
1: (laughs) (laughs) Motherfucker...
0: I think you're out.
2: What
1: watching. is it? Eons. Eons. E-or. Think e The 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 American spelling, if it helps, tends to elide that a, so it is just E O N S. Think of it that way. It's eons. From out of the eons. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I might call A it gigantic, gigantic, gigantic tentacled, tentacle, proboscidean, proboscidean, proboscidean octopus-eyed, eyed, semi-amorphous, plastic, 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 partly squamous and partly rugose. Ah! Ah! I should say that that sentence has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven dashes. Oh, out of the eons with
2: uh, with hazel healed and many end-dashes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and... and a couple of hyphens as well.
1: That must be some kind of record. From Through the Gates of the Silver key, a collaboration with E. Hoffman Price. He was, as many a night before, walking amidst throngs of clawed, snouted beings, through the streets of a labyrinth of inexplicably fashioned metal under a blaze of diverse solar colour. And, as he looked down, he saw that his body was like those of the others, rugos, partly squamous, and curiously articulated in a fashion mainly insect-like, yet not without a caricaturous resemblance to the human outline.
0: Let's move on to today's topic, and we're discussing Unknown Armies. A game created by John Tynes and Greg Stolze in 1998. I think it was first published with a second edition in 2002. And I believe with a third edition in playtesting.
1: Yes, yeah, it was announced sometime last year. I believe You know, from following threads on uh, mainly on RPGnet that uh, I believe the writing is mostly done on it and they're in playtesting now. Those names might sound familiar, or at least, you know, if you're a Call of Cthulhu fan, at least one of those is going to sound very familiar. John Tynes has been heavily involved with Call of Cthulhu for, well, ever since the early 90s.
0: Well, Unspeakable Earth started in 1990, I believe, uh, and he was one of the the main movers behind that, and, uh, you know, then that became Pagan Publishing and Delta Green and so on. I think he's taken somewhat more of a back seat now. He's more into computer games, making actual money. So they tell me, you'll never catch on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, Greg Stolze has been incredibly prolific in RPG publishing and still is. Uh, he's done a lot of supplementary material for uh, Over the Edge, for Wave, for uh, the World of Darkness. Uh, he's created his own set of mechanics well for, you know first of all for unknown armies he created the one role engine uh, which is at the heart of games like Godlike and wild talents yeah he has written a number of other games based on those you know, both for uh, you know larger RPG publishers and a, uh, a bunch of self-published stuff and yeah he, he's not only incredibly prolific he's incredibly imaginative and incredibly good mm. yeah and they're both written fiction as well Uh, Yes, well, they've both specifically written fiction for Unknown Armies. Tynes has certainly written a number of short stories set in Unknown Armies. And
0: Delta Green as well, yes. Particularly, uh, like myself, a big fan of The King in Yellow. Yeah, Um, oh yeah, and he's written quite a bit of specific King in Yellow uh, material. Yeah, some of of which
2: is um, on my... um, i channelling my, my Ineobiblomancer here, which we'll finally get to explain what the hell that reference means later. Uh, trying to find some of the original print copies of his um, trio of K- um, King
0: and Yellow stories are very hard to find. I can find reprints, but not the originals. Yeah, you'll be very lucky to find those. I was kind of on the website when the last ones were there, and I can remember them thinking about ordering them, and I was just about getting ready to, and then they'd all gone. Mm-hmm. Over the, yeah, they were they were there for a while, but I think they were limited editions of about 100. Yeah, they're a
2: bit like what they did with the Eyes Only um, chapter books. They were very short-run, but also very good. I've read the first two after finally finding those in a reprint collection.
1: And Stolz, he's written a fair amount of fiction as well. Oh. Uh, he's written a number of tie-in novels for the world of darkness. Yep. He's written some collections of short stories. And he wrote a novel that ties into the Unknown Armies universe called Godwalker, which is a hell of a lot of fun. Oh, ma- amazing book. So really, really, really good book. Yeah, if you're getting into unknown armies and you want to get a feel for what the game is like and what the setting's like, I really do recommend reading Godwalker. Mm, it's interesting.
2: I'd actually come at that from a different angle and say because it ties in a lot with the meta plot and some details that necessarily you wouldn't pick up the significance of them. I'd probably say you'd probably want to play a bit first before reading Godwalker.
1: Unfortunately, the game line got discontinued around 2003. Atlas Games, who publish it, uh, I think, weren't getting terrific sales from the supplements. So they stopped producing supplements around then, apart from one free PDF download uh, that has come out, well, I think came out a couple of years ago. But apart from that, they've kept the core book in print since then. But the rest of the line, you're looking at... Quite high prices on eBay if you want physical artefacts sometimes.
2: Yeah, especially uh, the likes of Postmodern Magic to try and find an original copy of that would be 50 quid plus. Um, Statosphere, upwards of that. If you want to find a copy of To Go, then probably three figures at times.
1: On the bright side, with 3rd edition coming out, well, with any luck within the next few years, I hope that means that the line is actually going to get revived.
2: No, very much so.
1: I want new material! Come on! Despite being out of print, it still gets quite a lot of play. It turns up a lot on forums online. Uh, It turns up a lot in conventions still. I know, for example, Todd Furler, who we all met at IndieCon last year, runs games at a lot of US conventions and has has got a hell of a reputation for running good, Mm. quite often disturbing games of unknown armies at cons. Yeah, his, His games at Gen Con sell out in minutes. Yeah, if you get a chance to play with Todd, we really, really recommend it.
0: Mm -hmm. Let's take a look at the setting for Unknown Armies.
1: Unknown Armies is a notoriously difficult game to sum up. When I've tried describing it to people at conventions before, there are very, very few ways of of condensing what the game is and the general tone in a few sentences.
0: Because when it came out, it was kind of perceived almost as an alternate rule set that you could run Call of Cthulhu in. That was my take on it that I was kind of hearing. But it's not really that at all. But in a way, it's kind of like you're playing um, just regular people in a weird world.
1: Well, that's one version of it, but um, there's a hell of a lot more to it. I mean, let's start off with just trying to pin down what Unknown Armies feels like.
2: The best one I can think of describing it as, unfortunately, means you have to know the frame of reference. Tim Powers, the RPG.
1: Yeah, the game is hugely influenced by Tim Powers. And if you haven't read Tim Powers, well, you should. Uh, He wrote a trio of novels uh, called Last Call, Expiration Date and Earthquake Weather, which pretty much set the template for what Unknown Armies is.
0: But let's take it that we haven't read those and tell us what it is.
1: Well, one description that I saw someone use online a while back, I don't know if it's from any of the official materials, uh, but which really clicked was, you know, it's it's pulp fiction, but where yeah you know, everyone is chasing the puzzle box from Hellraiser.
0: Yep, that pretty much does sum it up in a lot of ways. That tells me it's kind of an occult gangster thing. Yes. Yeah.
1: And yeah. Well, gangster is probably wrong. I mean, it's got a very noirish feel to it. It's about desperate, driven people doing stupid, suboptimal things in pursuit of power or knowledge.
0: But to, to drill down, I mean, it's it's ostensibly a kind of modern-day real-world setting. Yeah. And there are several different levels of play, but in, in the first one, you're playing ordinary people.
1: Yes, there are three levels of play uh, which are described as street level, global level, and cosmic level. So if you're playing a street level game, then your characters are just ordinary people. This is the classic horror game thing of your characters are... Uh, Part of a bigger, wider, scarier world, but don't know anything about
0: that. You ultimately see the tarmac beneath your feet and not much else. And thinking about that level of things, is there a TV show or something like that 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 kind of
1: compares to it? There are lots of comparisons you can make. I mean, people quite often compare it to David Lynch's work. And, you know, I can certainly see, you know, perhaps some elements of the weirdness in, you know, things like Mulholland Drive and Lost Highway and so on. I, I would say a, a street level game more
2: probably is more aligned to true detective. Yeah. Because no. that's the point where the weirdness dial is fairly low, but uh-huh. then you can crank that up as you go up through um, the way I kind of visualise it. When I said that like, you can only see the tarmac beneath your feet for a street level, uh, global level, you've just suddenly elevated yourself and you can see the world in that big picture. And cosmic level, you can see the entire universe within the grand scheme of things.
1: Yeah, one description that I heard, which I think works quite well there, is you know the game centres around this idea that there is this you know uh, don't really want to call it an organisation because it isn't a disorganisation you know a a, a a you know very loose network of people which is referred to generally as the cult underground, the people who are clued in. And the idea is, in a street-level game, you sort of brush up against the occult underground or the effects of the things that they do. Generally but you're not, not being, part of it. Yeah, I was just about to say, not a part of it. In, in a global-level game, you are part of the occult underground. You are uh, you're part of a cabal, or you're someone who is trying to get something out of the larger network, or you know, it generally is, is clued in to some degree. In a cosmic level game, you're one of the movers and shakers. Uh, you are, you know, at the very top tiers of the occult underground. Uh, and I mean, this is both a good thing and a bad thing. It's good because it means you have lots of power, potentially lots of respect, uh, but probably not. Um, but the bad side is it means that you have probably printed a, a big fuck off target on your back.
2: Okay. A lot of people at this level, where the title of the game could be interpreted as coming from, is that you are in control of a large enough group of people that they might be referred to as an army that are working towards a particular goal. But the rest of the world would not have heard of these organisations, hence why there would be
0: unknown armies. So there are these occult organisations made up of of humans who have have learnt arcane knowledge, yes?
1: Yes, and, mm-hmm. well, you talk about learning arcane knowledge. There are a few different approaches to magic in the game, and this is right at the core of it. The three main ones, there's this thing that's referred to as authentic thaumaturgy.
2: That, that's probably the only one that can be taught, really.
1: Yes. <laughs> these are the, the rituals that you can learn, and the rituals that you learn in, in uh, Unknown Armies tend to be fairly surreal, bizarre things. There are a few different types, but the basic rituals, there tend to be no direct correlation between the ingredients or the actions you perform and the end goal you're trying to do. I mean, it's just, you know, you're doing random things with, you know, running around with half-empty bottles of uh, special brew and a bag full of dead wasps in a car park at night and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, what, what you do may be, you know, sort of creating your own little world or something.
0: A lot of the magic is quite strange. Then, where does the power come from? Are there, you know, are you drawing power from uh, gods or other beings, or Depend- where is this stuff coming from?
2: Depends on what type of. If you think of more traditional magic user classes, there are two very distinct schools of those, and the answer is different depending on which one you're talking about.
1: Yeah, and completely different to what we just talked about with authentic thaumaturgy. With authentic thaumaturgy, yeah, you know, where you're drawing the power from, it doesn't really matter. It just happens
2: i say it's more of a cheat code to the universe. It's you've just found a way that the way the world works. It's like you put potassium in water, it's going to go bang. It just so happens that if you run around with a bag of bees at midnight on top of a multi-storey car park, you create your own pocket universe. Duh, didn't you know that?
1: But the other types of magic are a bit different. But before we get onto that, I mean, there's other types of ritual magic in this as well. Mm-hmm. There's so- you know, tilts and proxies. With tilts, what you're trying to do, this is much more kind of the the classic sympathetic magic approach. You're trying to create uh, associations, you're trying to create symbolic relationships to try to tip the laws of probability in your favour to try to make something happen. Mm-hmm. So this, can, I mean, this is like the classic voodoo doll stuff or getting a bit of someone's hair or knowing their true name and stuff like that. Or well, as Paul's looking a bit perplexed,
2: um, think of it that you've got a pinball machine in front of you. You've just given it a jolt
0: so the ball goes the way you want it to go. Hence why it's called tilt. So it's very human centric. Very much so. (laughs) What humans can do. I mean, it's the opposite of what we were talking about, where the Cthulhu mythos humans are kind of insignificant. Humans are very, very significant in this. They're They're the main movers. They're everything.
1: There is arguably nothing significant in the Unknown Armies universe that is not the response, that is not somehow related to human action. I can't think of anything that's not directly related. I'd say the one possibility is the crawl ones. Yeah, but even so, they still
2: deal with humans that have gone through into another phase.
1: Yeah, but. The argument I'd make is that I mean everything else that you know you can see in this is either someone something that used to be a person or something that a person made. Mm-hmm. Cruel ones we don't know what the hell they are in the game background. Mm-hmm. They could be something completely other alien. Uh, yeah, yes, humans interact with them, but that doesn't mean the, the, that humans mm-hmm. are responsible for them.
2: No, which is one thing that I do very much like about the, the setting, the canvas
0: in general. There's lots of hints, lots of references, and not everything is explained. You've mentioned quite a few things. One of them was proxies and tilts. I think, Scott, you were explaining what tilts were. Um, what are proxies then, Matt? Uh, proxies are best explained in
2: the. If you get hold of a copy of the second edition of Unknown Armies, um, there's a lovely um, short story at the beginning which helps to set um, exactly how these work with a. What, admittedly, as much as Scott hates the term, canon um, NPC, a character by the name of. Well, he goes by several names, but one of them is Derma Arcane. Dermot's uh, raison d'etre is that he's a particular magic user that sets up a lot of proxies as effectively supernatural armor. That he gives someone a name that is an anagram of his own, so he creates a sympathetic connection to that person. Anything that is fired mystically at Dermot, the poor proxy takes the brunt of it. Oh, okay. They're effectively, they are a. As I say, it's effectively supernatural ablative armor, where they, they have an intimate connection to him and will suffer all the bad shit where he doesn't get hit by it.
1: Yes, but th- this is lifted almost wholesale uh, from Tim Powers' Last Call. Well,
0: it's, yeah, it's pretty much the plot of the uh, the plot of the book. Yeah. <laughs> We've mentioned a few things here. We've got three levels of play: street, global, and cosmic. And th- but these all tie into the same setting; they're just different levels of play in that setting. And within that setting, we also have characters, player characters as well, right? That can be Adepts or Avatars. Yes, very much so. So what are Adepts?
2: Uh, Adepts, if, um, again, if you use a, using a comparative example, if you've ever played a game of Mage, either Mage the Awakening or Mage the Ascension, are very much like characters you'll find in there. That they are defined by a very narrow paradigm. They see the world through a singular lens emphasis on singular that their obsession is focused on one particular thing
1: yeah i think the difference though is that in unknown armies these tend to be fairly self-destructive pursuits oh very
2: much so yes but i'd say it's that it's a good characterization between them that they are again they have this very singular focus that they see the world through a particular way and everything is affected by that um, the way the world works because the way where their power is drawn from is their own will and sheer force, uh, sheer bloody-mindedness to say this is the way I think the world is,
0: and they they power up by essentially following their their hobby, if you like, their yeah. their, their obsession. Yeah. So you were referencing bibliomancer; they power up by collecting books and, and rare books and and so on. Yeah. I've been trying this for years and I still haven't got it to work, but I hear
2: that's the way it works in the game. Yes. <laughs>
1: Yes, yeah, so you get a certain amount of magical mojo for buying, you know, a certain volume of books, mm-hmm. and if you start buying rare books or, you know, particularly incredibly rare or unique and famous books, uh, well, I say buying, you can steal them. <laughs> um, but uh, then that gives you a hell can of a lot more Can modules. you borrow them from the library? Only if you don't return them. Because you well, that wouldn't it. be borrowing them, would it? No. Yeah, because that's I mean, it, the essence it, of borrowing. This,
2: this This is one thing that um, <laughs> does touch upon, though, how adepts' work is their taboo. Um, that there is a certain action that adepts cannot. Well, they say they, they can do it because they can, um, but they should not do under any circumstance. They try and avoid at all costs. The minute that a bibliomancer would give
0: up a book, like returning it to a library, bang! All the magic's gone. Ah, okay. So they have they have they have a goal and they have something they mustn't do at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And with these adepts with their 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 goals and pursuits they get charges they get minor charges and major charges right so and, for, and for
1: significant a, charges
0: on oh, mm-hmm. so how does how does that rank minor minor significant major and they get those for fulfilling uh, different levels of difficulty of achievement basically yeah
1: so let, let's Take uh, an example. You know, one of my favourite schools from the book, epideromancers. <laughs> <laughs> epideromancers are people who practice self-mutilation. So, I mean, this is, you know, perhaps it started out as the teenage kid uh, who, you know, deals with their problems by getting a razor blade out and carving things into their arms. And it escalates from there. Specifically with the epiderromamancer, it's the fact that they see the world through the lens of control of their own body by being in control of the destruction of their own body, they can you know do healing, they can change uh, their own flesh they can change the flesh of other people because you know they, this is how they see the world and they can get a fairly minor amount of magic, a minor charge, by you know something you know fairly simple like you know cutting up themselves, cutting up their arms with a razor blade, as I mentioned. You know something that does a fairly small amount of damage. If they want a bit more juice, uh, like a significant charge, they could, for example, get a knife and plunge it into their abdomen. Take a bit of a risk, do themselves quite a lot of damage, risk some internal bleeding, you know, possibly some organ damage. And one, one of the
2: really evocative and uh, almost stomach-churning moments that I remember is how one of the canon uh, epideromancers has link, chain links that run through
0: their rib cage that they just pull them out and snap a rib every time they want a sig charge. So, yeah. but, but, but once they've done this, do they do they use that same magic to heal themselves? No, not general.
1: Bit- no, they can't because I. I, I so they general- are actually taking a yes.
0: significant injury alongside their magic. Yeah, because yeah, the minute they heal themselves, that's their magic gone.
1: Yeah, the way they get a major charge. Now, major charges are meant to be, they're, they're sort of the holy grail for uh, for adepts. They're the things that you might spend your whole life working towards. Some schools can shortcut this a bit. You know, they, they don't necessarily have to set up this kind of unlikely set of events that certain schools would. And epideromancers are one of the ones where they can, in theory, get a major charge at any time. But they have to do it through a significant act of self-mutilation, like uh, cutting their tongue out, pulling an eye out, cutting a limb off, that kind of thing. Does it involve a
0: visit to the cock merchant, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> bloody game of thrones uh, fanboy yeah
1: if, if, if yeah if you take yourself to the cock merchant you get a major charge hmm. for that or,
2: or drink a bottle of bleach yes I mean, yeah the the diff, um, the mechanical effect is that it is permanent damage that cannot be healed so you've got to survive
0: doing it so if you heal so if you do your magic and then heal yourself even you know, if you do if you heal yourself let's say a week later
2: bye bye all your charge is gone
0: Yes, but if you've used it already, does that get Oh, that's you know. the best time to do it then if you're empty. <laughs> all right. So, it, it, what what you had done with your magic wouldn't reverse.
2: No. Um, it's purely about the, um, you gaining power which you use to fuel your magic. Right. Think of it as like having coins to put in a slot machine. You've just earned yourself a whole um, a whole bagload of coins. Performing your taboo is effectively losing all your coins.
1: Uh-huh. To give you some idea, I mean the minor charges are used for fairly minor things. Uh, using uh, the example of say an entropomancer, entroppomanncers uh, are all about uh, taking risks uh, so you know they're the adrenaline junkies they're you know the people who will um, ride their bike the wrong way down a busy city street or, While or go, blindfolded. yes or go base jumping or stuff like that you know they, they get a rush out of doing it and they get charges out of doing it. They can then parlay this into uh, playing around with coincidence and probabilities and so on. And so for you know minor charges, you know, they can, you know, perhaps arrange to, you know, bump into a friend on the street or something like that, um, you know, when they hadn't arranged to meet. for significant charges Or oh, something quite low key then really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Yeah. There's a formula spell I particularly like for entropomances. Can't remember for the life of me what it's called. But basically, for a significant charge, or a couple of significant charges, you pick up a telephone, you dial it at random, uh, try, thinking of a person who you want to speak to, the phone nearest that person, wherever they are in the world, just starts ringing.
2: We ended up using that to great effect in the, in the campaign we just played, didn't we? Yes.
1: <laughs> Even though the person didn't answer it. No, it was rather difficult. He couldn't at the time. <laughs> yeah.
2: Large well, harms. arms. Yes. <laughs>
1: Yes, he was largely a head in the jar, a head in a jar at the time. But that phone still rang.
0: <laughs> That's adepts, and you play those if you're playing a global level game. You wouldn't play that on. You wouldn't play those on a street level game. No, no you'd encounter them in a street level game as NPCs. Yeah, but no, you wouldn't be playing one
2: as a street game. Other good what? examples of adepts I can think of. Um, again, going on the self-destructive bent because most of these do end up destroying themselves in one fashion or another. Dipsomancers. How to how to destroy your liver and gain magical charges at the same time?
1: <laughs> yes, tips and answers gain power through drinking alcohol. You can only get. In fact, this is an interesting one because you can drink any amount of alcohol, but you can only get minor charges from it unless you have what is called a significant vessel. So that is a you know a drinking vessel of some kind that has got historical significance to it.
2: The shot glass that Henri Paul drank from before going uh, to take dye. Uh, down a tunnel in Paris,
0: for example.
1: Yeah, that kind of thing. Um, and if you use that and drink from it, then every time you take a, a drink, you get a significant charge from it. Mm-hmm.
0: So this game is about good taste, much like Lamentations of the Flame Princess. <laughs> oh,
1: God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't there uh, you just tweaked?
0: Elvis's whiskey glass or something like oh, no, that? I've, I've used Elvis in a game. Yeah, I know you <laughs> do. i played
2: in it, I think. <laughs> uh, one of the adept schools is icon magic, essentially. you um, You worship a particular idol, and the, uh, the idol in this case for my NPC was that he worshipped Elvis. And that uh, when he died, um, he got a chance to come back by trying to convince another Elvis impersonator that he was the voice of Elvis talking from beyond and that he was trying to recreate a magical body for him to come back that had to be built from all parts of different Elvis impersonators sat on the <laughs> loo which Elvis had died on.
0: <laughs> That's
1: awesome. Almost Bubba Hotep. <laughs> Thank you very much. And there's another adept school that people do tend to focus on when they talk about unknown armies, and that's Pornomancers. No. (laughs) Yeah, Pornomancers, well, they're weird because all the Pornomancers are part of the same secret society, uh, which is called the Sect of the Naked Goddess. And the idea is that there was this porn star uh, who is known now as the Naked Goddess who actually ascended to godhood uh, while on the production of a porn film... The, the, uh, yeah, it was all being recorded, and you know the, the the recording of that particular event is again like a holy grail for people.
2: It's a bit like the ring, except it doesn't it doesn't kill you; it just gives you power. Um, they want uh, they want like first generation copies of the tape, the original copy of the tape. Um, but otherwise, you have this grainy, like fifth-generation copy that's been put through so many VCRs and spread throughout the world that has only a
0: little slice of the power left in it. What's the tape, Granddad? <laughs> <laughs>
2: that thing I grew up with, and I've got still uh, shit sure. tons of them in my house. <laughs> I've got a lot. You know, that's
0: something you could. You have been getting rid of stuff, Matt. That is something you could get rid of. Don't don't tell that to
2: Tiff. <laughs> I've got a lot of old Doctor Who VHS tapes. I'm like a, a bibliomancer with uh, with Doctor Who. You stuff. mean a,
1: a videomancer?
2: That too, as well. Yeah, that's that's a good segue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i am videomancers are those um, individuals which are obsessed by t- um, a particular TV show. They must catch the TV show, even the reruns, whenever it's on TV. They're there,
0: square-eyed, glued to the TV, watching this thing. So these yeah. are basically sounding like the people you have around your gaming table to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: and if you want to go old school, another favourite of mine is mechanomancers.
2: Oh, yeah, the clockworks. Yeah,
1: you know, they, these are different from the others in a lot of respects because they don't have a lot of the sort of ritualistic, self-destructive aspects of it, or at least not in the day-to-day stuff. They gain their charges just simply by building stuff. But they can then build these, these clockwork machines that in some cases achieve mm. sentience and, you know, in extreme cases may not even realise that they're clockwork mm. machines. And you get to play them.
0: This was one that Kiri was telling me he was running for a group. I won't say what the scenario was, but it features a mechanomancer, which was supposed to be a secret for that player character. He gave the character sheets out, and the player said, hmm, so I make robots, do I?
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's one thing actually we haven't touched upon for um, Adepts, that they all have in common, apart from the odd one or two of which the mechanomancer is one of them, um, they all have a particular blast style. Um, that's again one thing that characterizes them is they can all fuck someone up in a very particular way, um whether it be like a anthroponcer waving their hand and suddenly erupting all over the skin of someone is like the words ha, ha 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 or some other word that they want to appear on them it's a way for which they can do like a magic
0: missile, so they attack. have a motif to their magic,
1: yes, yeah, <laughs> and it is generally something that is thematically linked uh with with their uh, their their school. Uh, so, for example, Dipsomancers, you know, we we didn't really go into those. Their magic, you know, they gain power through drinking, but their magic is all about spirits and ghosts. Spirits they, in many fashions, yes. Exactly. <laughs> They're basically exorcists. <laughs> but their magical blast is basically poltergeist activity.
2: Hmm. Um, another favourite of mine... Uh, The Plutomancer is one that, uh, the short version is essentially it's all about the acquisition of money. They don't actually do anything to you. They make you hurt yourself. So it's, yeah, some of the stuff is pretty
0: messed up. How do they do that? How do they make you hurt yourself? Just by encouraging you to do it? No,
1: no, they just basically, you know, tell you to do so. You know, one of them will blast you and you'll do something like fish your keys out of your pocket and jam them near your eye.
0: That's not how they get their charges, then.
1: No, that's how they hurt you. Yeah.
2: That's oh, The pollutants say it's all about the acquisition of money. The more money they earn, right. the more power they okay, get.
1: Or yeah. steal.
0: Earn, steal, tomato, tomato. <laughs> We've talked about adepts. What about avatars? What are they all about?
1: Well, I think the way I described it when I was running a campaign recently is that adepts are all about how they see the world. And avatars... It's all about how the world sees you. Yeah, you are very much playing to
2: someone else's set of rules rather than making your own. Um, the adept sees the world through that particular lens and says, this is how I want the world to work. Whereas the avatar says, this is a particular goal that I'm working towards that the rest of the world has defined. I will become that goal. Um, they take on stereotypes. They follow a particular embodiment of what you would think of a... It is, an, it is an archetype, isn't it? That's the, word, it is, the, the yeah. word that's used. An archetype within the human subconscious, like the mother figure, the father figure, uh, the most valuable player in the room, the outcast. Well, let's
0: pick one of those and, and uh, pull it to pieces well, then. so
1: Well, the mother is quite a good one there. Yes because you know the mother in this case is the you know the very protective you know sort of almost you know feral you know mother bear protecting her cub uh-huh. so this is you know fundamentally all about being a good mother you know looking after your children making sure that your know, your children or children in general don't get hurt the more you you embody that archetype the more power you can channel so that you know if someone endangers children around you you can draw on that power and fuck them up
0: good so how how might that manifest then so the mother. So would a player play the mother, potentially? The mm-hmm. player becomes the mother avatar. Um, and how would they get power? What would they do? This. The more they embody the stereotype in that ad- avatars don't have what adepts require. Adep- adepts have charges. Avatars don't. But if, in a game, you've got to kind of somehow measure how they embody the archetype. So how is that measured?
1: Um, it's, it's a skill.
0: Yeah, it's a skill that you buy with XP, but you make sure that you
2: continually do not do something that is counter to your archetype. So
0: you're putting your experience points into it to boost that skill yes. and role-playing that yeah. archetype. Yeah. But, okay.
1: but again, like the adepts, avatars have taboos. So, for example, if you're playing the right. mother archetype and you deliberately, or I think maybe even accidentally, mm-hmm. let a child come to harm, uh-huh. that would be breaking your taboo. And so, as a result, instead of because you don't have any charges to lose, what you actually lose instead is is points on your skill. So, your skill level actually goes down every time you break your taboo.
0: Yeah. And what does your skill do then? So, you don't have these uh, charges to use like the Adepts use to to do uh, magical um, things. What does the avatar have up their sleeve? Yeah. Um, The best example I use is actually a different
2: um, avatar school called um, the Peacemaker. They have channels. Um, as they're called, which are, if you have between 0 and 50, or 51 and 75, a range of percentiles on your sheet to say what your skill level is, that's what you can do at that level. At the first level, a peacemaker will walk into a room where there's a couple of people arguing at a bar. They'll say say stop, and the two people stop um, stop arguing. The minute he turns his back, though, and walks out, they'll continue fighting if they want to. Uh, The next level up, it can be, like, a ballroom blitz. He will walk in, put his hand up in the air and say, stop, and the whole room... Stops fighting, again. Once he leaves, whatever. Next level above that, so third out of the four levels, it's a whole city-wide or baseball stadium full of people, hundreds of people rioting. His word will make every person stop.
0: Fourth level, that hurricane. He says stop, it stops. I was going to say it was quite specific, but I guess if you can stop things like hurricanes and so on, that that broadens it out. Depends on, on which school on you're at. Yeah.
1: So so if we look at a different avatar type, the merchant, mm-hmm. right? you played a merchant in a recent campaign. So oh. this is fairly fresh in my mind. With one of the more advanced channels than this, I think it's the penultimate channel, you can, uh, the the merchant is all about brokering deals. You make deals with people. With one of the higher channels, you can make deals to exchange absolutely anything. This is the classic sort of sell your soul deal. You know, you give me, you know, your soul or your memory of, you know, your favorite day in your life um, or your eyesight or something like that. And in, in return, you know, I will give you something. Right.
0: Sounded like a little like the guy from Weave World. Yes. With the jacket who should open it and uh, offer you, you know, whatever you magical thing you saw in there, that you you know, your heart's desire.
1: Yeah, Shadwell is very much a merchant.
0: I, I like the the top level one though, that's that's just
2: a work of genius if you can get that high. The um, your opponent in combat has to pay you to shoot you or hit you. He has to physically give you cash. <laughs> if he hasn't got it on him, it's like, well, oh,
0: I can't I can't hurt this person, I don't know why, but I can't. <laughs> And these things are quite prescribed, when you take that avatar, they're prescribed in the book, are they? They they can do this, this, and this, a bit like a paladin can lay on hands. Yeah, they
2: they have the advantage of being able to do some remarkably powerful things if you get high enough up the tree,
0: but they are only those things that you can do. So it sounds quite narrow, if you take one of those. It sounds quite
1: narrow what you can do. It is, very much by design. But um, there's another problem to them as well. Which is, the more powerful you get, the more attention you attract. I mean, this happens to some extent with adepts, but it really happens with avatars. And the reason for this is there is this fundamental concept in Unknown Armies, which is the invisible clergy. Mm -hmm. The Invisible Clergy is a collection of 333 ascended avatars. They are people... Well, I was going to say 332,
2: because the 333rd is the Comte de Saint-Germain. No one really knows what he is.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But they're, they're 333 people who have ascended to a form of godhood. They've done so by following these archetypes. They bring a certain amount of themselves as well to this by ascending to godhood, even though they've done it in this very ritualised manner, that they help through their own impulses, once they've done so, to define what reality is at that stage. The problem is that only one person can ascend for each archetype. It's like a chair, only one person can sit in it at a time. And so as soon as someone is getting to the stage where they're ready to ascend, <laughs> everyone else who is following that particular archetype is gunning for them. They they don't want that person to to get there first.
0: Well, well, how does that uh, how does that position they're aiming for become vacant? By literally defeating the person that's already there. But they've ascended to godhood. You no. take on reality.
1: The way I understand it is a bit different, and yeah, you know, it's a while since I've read the book. I remember it is that there are yeah you know, there are a number of the seats vacant at this stage and these are the ones that people are going for. The idea is that when all three hundred and thirty three are filled, that's when the universe resets. And yeah,
2: uh, no, um, In theory, if you're going for a position, you're f- if you're forging a new avatar steam that has got nothing at the top, then congrats, you're the first person to get to the top of the chain. A bit like Alex Abel almost became the first white black man. Um, so would that was- be the three hundred thirty fourth one or? No, there are some that aren't defined. Yeah. There are right. 332 slots. One of them is permanently reserved for Lecomte, the first and the last man. Any of those slots can be filled by anyone who gets to a sufficiently high uh, rating in their avatar tree. But if you're going for someone who that seat's already taken, like me being the merchant, I want to try and get to the top and there's already a merchant sat
0: there, that merchant will put out the hit to every other merchant in the world and says, kill him. And is that merchant, we've said they've ascended to godhood, is that merchant on Earth, you know, walking around? Uh, you
2: might, if you're lucky, run into a manifestation of them, but even the rulebook says that should be fairly
0: rare. So we're talking about setting. Do you go off to other realms? You know, do you go off to other dimensions? Mm. It's called st- the status sphere, but it's very much the GM gets to define what the hell it is.
1: Yes, yeah, it's, it's not defined in the book really at all.
0: Right, so it could be Dreamlands, it could be Heaven, it could be... Well, one, of the, one of the nice things that each chapter in Unknown
2: Armies is, is it gives you a list of, this is the random shit you hear in the Occult Underground. One of the examples for the statusphere is that it's a glass cathedral on the moon. It could be anything. Right. This comes back to, again, where the title would come from. That, yeah, you've got these people in the Occult Underground that have formed their own armies to form specific tasks. Some of them have formed these armies so that they can become the
0: new Godwalker and they can ascend. Going back to the Invisible Clergy, there's 333 positions, albeit you said 332, and they are at the avatars, so is there always one of those 330 whatever positions that is the merchant, that is the messenger, that is the mother? Are they defined, or can you make up your own avatar and go for that? You, you could have like a thousand
2: different avatar choices, but only 332 of those can get to the top, because okay. whichever ones get their first,
0: win. Right. And then they get to destroy the world and recreate it in their own image. Does every time, does it start off as a street-level person that becomes an adept, that becomes an avatar, that ultimately might become a member of the Invisible Clergy? Or is it not necessarily going through those steps? I mean, does an adept become an avatar? Or can you go straight from a street-level to an avatar? You can be both an adept and an avatar at the same time. Difficult, but you can do this.
1: Yeah, it's it's not generally advised because people who tend to try to follow both paths tend to go crazy.
0: So they tend to be different paths, different things. Yeah. Because I'm 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 hearing about avatars and adepts, and avatars seem very narrow, adepts seem much broader. And so if they take on each other, I mean, is one generally more powerful than the other, or they they both do different things, so it's very hard to compare them. But I mean, if they meet up in the game,
1: avatars have got one big advantage over adepts, which is they don't need charges. Yeah, you know, if you get an adept who is fully charged up and is gunning for an avatar, then you know, depending on the, the school that they belong to, then they might be significantly more dangerous than the avatar. On the other hand, if the avatar is very high level, um, you know, particularly if they're a god walker, if they've got a ninety percent uh, or plus uh, chance in their skill, then they can do you know fantastic reality warping things as well. And you know, it's it's anyone's game. Yeah, certain skills, certain schools,
2: rather, are going to be better suited against other ones. Um, <laughs> funny moment from Scott in uh, an unknown Armies game we played uh, with, with Todd was um, a narco alchemist who controls drugs walks up to a dipsomancer, um, the one who controls uh, is funneled up with booze. Scott, as an alchemist taps the, the booze hound on the shoulder and turns him sober. That has just lost all his power.
1: Well, yeah, I yeah. seem to remember what I actually did was turn all the alcohol in his bloodstream into amphetamines. P-
2: pretty much the same result. Yeah. <laughs> just the look, of, the look of horror on the poor guy's face was worth every second of that. It, if you know the buttons to push... And if you've got the skills to do it, you could be potentially the thing that just completely nullifies and shuts
0: down another avatar skill, another adept skill. And these adepts and avatars. So we've said that at street level, you're playing ordinary guys. At global level, you can be playing an adept. Could you be playing an avatar at global level? Yeah. So once you get to global level, you could be avatars, you could be adepts. And once you get to cosmic level, what are you playing then? Just higher level adepts again, and avatars? Or? Well,
1: again, you can still be playing ordinary people there. I, in game mechanical terms, it's you know the difference between those different power levels is the number of points you get with which to build your characters. So you're playing a significantly more powerful character, and there is the assumption that they have a commensurate amount of knowledge about the occult underground for that power level. Mm-hmm. So even if you're playing someone who's not an adept or an avatar, they're probably part of one of these cabals or sects out there. They know a hell of a lot about the way the uh, occult underground works. They're still a mover and shaker, even though they may not have all that magical mojo. Mm -hmm.
2: One thing that I did hint about, and again, this is where I mentioned about um, the dead Elvis worshipper being on the other side. Death isn't necessarily an end in this game. Demons, in inverted commas, have got a place in the game. They're not part of any pseudo-Christian um, Christian viewpoint in the world, they are adepts with such a focused obsession that even death won't stop them. They leave something of their self behind that can be called back from the other side, um, primarily by dipsomancers, but also by the likes of the merchants and a few, other, a few other schools deal with them as well. But they are essentially ghosts of adepts that are still within the cycle and basically too obstinate to let go.
1: Yeah, but on the other hand, you know, they've been separated from the human world for long enough. Uh, without bodies, without physical sensation, no, when they come back, they tend to be hungry for those things. Mm-hmm. And as a result, they're incredibly dangerous. You, know, you, you bring one of them back, you put it into a human body, and it will go out there and try to slake every debauched thirst that it has, everything that has been missing on the mm-hmm. other side. And this is what makes people think of them as demons, because they do you know, incredibly horrible things in pursuit of sensation. Mm-hmm. You also have people who... You know, die but don't quite die. I mean, these are the sort of undead of Unknown Armies, what are referred to as revenants. And this is what you do if you want to do a sort of ghost story type thing. So if you wanted to do an Unknown Armies game that was inspired by The Ring, for example, you know, Sadako in that, or uh, Samara in the American version, is very much a revenant. Yeah, you know, this is someone who has died who is still motivated to act in a very sort of prescribed and ritualistic manner. You know, sometimes they're after revenge. Sometimes they just want recognition. Uh, sometimes their needs are a bit stranger than that. But they are, you know, fundamentally dead people who just will not let go.
2: You've got instances where you could have um, artifacts like uh, Macanamancer clockwork creations. Are a good example of that. You've also got the likes of golems. Um, there's artifacts like the naked goddess tape that we mentioned. Things that have been present at an event, a bit like the lost room, in a way, which is probably the closest thing to an unknown Army's TV series. I'd say if you're looking at a, if you're looking at a global or cosmic level, um, you even have cults of uh, form to worship certain items and so forth in the TV show. Again, there's a lot of parallels with with UA in that respect. <laughs> The game can take a considerably darker tone when looking at some of the creatures that are made as the result of some um, some human action. Uh, Carnals being one and fairies, I think, being another one. Oh, God, yeah. So how do you yeah. mean a darker tone? In what sense? This is where definitely the 18-rated certificate comes on the game.
1: Yeah, so fairies, for example, in Unknown Armies, are the spirits of aborted fetuses.
2: Yeah. Also um, tied in with UFO myths and so on, where you're abducted by fairies taken away to fairyland, or taken away by aliens up into a spaceship. Similar kind of thing, it's just you're looking at it through a a different cultural perspective. But, yeah, the stuff that they do to you with the anal probe
0: and so forth. I've seen the South Park episode. (laughs) But, yeah, um, I won't even even go carnal. We've said that the Adepts and the Avatars join occult associations. I don't know about the It can be anyone. Yeah. Oh, it could be anybody. Yeah, it can be absolutely anyone. I'm I'm taking it this isn't one big cohesive society. These are lots of little uh, groups and factions. Some are big, some are very small. Yes. And and what kind of things are they aiming to do. They've all got their own goals and agendas, I guess.
1: Well, there's a hell of a lot of variety, and and not all of them are magical. I mean, there's the idea, even in a street-level game, that you might you know have player characters who form a cabal. These cabals can be about very non-magical things, so I think one of the examples in the book is you know, a group of people who do valet parking who go around fighting crime as vigilantes. That is a cabal? Or... You, can, you can
2: work up from very small groups, um, to something maybe a little larger, where you've got pockets of the same organisation in a city here and there, a bit like the sect of the Naked Goddess, yeah. where they aren't exactly unified, but they have a very, in in the grand scheme of things, a very small goal. They want to basically get hold of the tape. They want to show us this thing to as many people that helped help enlightenment.
0: These are oh, cool. sounding more like drivers for
2: scenarios
1: then. Um, they certainly help. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, there are also organisations that player characters can belong to. I mean, certainly, I've run a game where one of the characters was a pornomancer who was involved with the, se- the, the, the sect of the naked goddess. Um, I, th- this was just what the player chose, and I just wove it all into the game, and it worked beautifully.
2: Yeah, you, you work up maybe a little bit more from there, and you've got an organisation. Well, actually, quite a big step, actually, um, an organisation like Mac Attacks, or as we know it, McDonald's.
1: Yeah, th- this is probably my favourite one from Unknown Armies. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's. Um, all the people who work... Oh, well, not all the people, but select people who work in McDonald's all around the world have formed this magical organisation where they're trying to save the world and bring enlightenment to the masses. One Happy Meal at a time. And they do this by earning charges and putting the charges into the, the, the burgers that they sell in McDonald's. Mm-hmm. And when people eat them, they get ma- random magical effects.
2: There, there is a glorious D100 chart... <laughs> the, um, that goes over two pages in the kind cent- sort of centerfold of the Break Today Mac Attack source book That lower you roll, the better. Like zero one, congratulations! You're now an avatar of a, of a particular path. You gain ten percent your avatar skill. Woohoo! Up to one hundred spontaneous combustion somewhere in the next thirty-three minutes.
1: Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs> and. There's even an example in there, isn't there, of, um, of what happens when people throw away partially uneaten meals. And uh, yeah, they, they, there's a description of these mice that have been eating them that have started becoming more and more human. They, 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 they've started making clothes for themselves and talking and they form formed their own little society just on the back of eating these discarded magical hamburgers. It's
0: like Animal Farm in the McDonald's dumpster. <laughs> this is a spin-off for Mouse Guard. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, Mouse
1: Guard is a sub-game of UA. (laughs) There we go. You know, I now want to run an un army's one-shot where you're playing these mice.
2: (laughs) Oh, boy. Thinking of favourite organisations, I'm always torn between two of them as to which which one is my favourite. One, I think, works best as an NPC group, and one works best as a player character group. The one that's more accessible, the player character group, is just known as TNI, The New Inquisition. Founded by one of the richest men in the world, um, as I mentioned previously, Alex Abel, he almost got a seat in the Invisible Clergy. He messed up at the very last minute because he didn't realise that he was that powerful. In fact, he didn't realise he was an avatar. He has now built, using his whole fortune, a massive organisation dedicated to going into the occult underground and stealing as much of it as he possibly can to find the way that he can get another shot at being a god. And he has some remarkably scary people working for him. These are the mafioso of the occult underground. They're the people that will quite happily go in and shoot everyone in a room to get what they need. They are the um, John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson characters from Pulp Fiction. They yes. are TNI agents. The other one, though, counterpoint to them, almost a bit mafioso in their MO, are the sleepers.
1: Yes, I love the sleepers. I They're fantastic. They are um, they're the boogeymen the occult underground they're an organization that has realized that if the world at large starts learning that there are these people running around who can do magic the bad things will follow from this there'll be witch trials and panic and you know as they put it the tiger will wake their solution to this is basically every time someone does something that is a bit too showy or ostentatious they you know, either give them a very stern warning, or generally you know, fuck them up big time in some way. You know, uh, ranging from you know, uh, stealing some of their mojo to just plain killing them. <laughs> yeah, they,
2: they make an example of the ones that have only messed up slightly, and then the other ones that severely fuck up disappear.
0: And now we look at the mechanics for the game. How do we create a character for Unknown Armies? How crunchy a game is it? How much detail is there on the character sheet? What kind of things do we have there?
1: There's really not very much. Characters in Unknown Armies are quite simple. They're defined by a few major things. Uh, The first is sort of personality traits, I guess. What are referred to as the passions as well as an obsession. So passions are the things that really strongly motivate the character in certain situations. So
0: is this just something the player's going to make up? So I'm yes. passionate about X?
1: Yeah, well, you've got three defined passions. You've got a fear trigger, you've got a rage trigger, and you've got a noble trigger. Mm-hmm. So a fear trigger could be something like, you know, you're afraid of drowning or afraid of the dark. or you know. What scares the shit out of you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so if you're in a situation where you're under threat from that, you gain a mechanical bonus. Oh, mm-hmm. at least you, you get to re-roll if yeah. you fail your roll. Your rage trigger, it's similar. It's the thing that pisses you off more mm-hmm. than anything else. So that could be you know, something minor like being cut up in traffic to you know, um, you know, know, seeing uh, people being bullied. Mm-hmm. Politicians. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so these are the things that make you unreasonably angry. And again, you can draw on that anger and, mm-hmm. and get re-rolls if you need. The button that pushes that means you go apeshit. Hmm. And your noble trigger is your best nature. So this can be, you know, something like helping you know those who need help. Uh, it can be something like, um, you know, artistic creation. It can be a very practical or a very nebulous thing, but it is your best nature. Mm-hmm. So
0: those three things, once you define those, those are given values of some kind, or no,
1: no, no, they're, they're just described as, as right. those things. You, as a player, uh, look out for situations where those come into play. So let's say that you've got um, a fear of fire. Your character at some stage is trying to get out of a burning building, you make an athletics roll to try to jump out the window, you fail. You sort of say to the, the GM at this stage, oh hang on, my fear trigger is fire, and you know, he or she says, oh yeah, okay, you know, give us a re-roll. Mm-hmm. The other thing I mentioned was an obsession. If you're not an adept, your obsession can be absolutely anything, so it could be something like you know, being the best long-distance runner you can be. Or Elvis, or jazz music.
2: It can can be anything.
1: Before we get on to defining the skills, they they're all based on uh, four central stats. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, body. Resilience. Your physical. Yeah, it's yeah. it's the it's one of the two physical skills. Um, the other one is speed, which is pretty much accounts to your dexterity and so forth. Uh huh. It's pretty much everything that body doesn't cover is covered under speed. Right. Then you've got mind, and the last one, which is. Probably closest to power, if you think of it in Cthulhu terms, is soul. Um, this is where the magical mojo
0: lies.
1: But it's not just that. I mean, it's things like uh, social skills you know, social as social well. Skills, yeah. mm-hmm.
0: So we've got those four stats, and then you've got skills under those.
1: Yeah. So we're looking at a very traditional kind of sheet, or not? We sort of. I mean, each skill is associated with a stat one of the things that makes unknown armies you know fairly unusual or at least for games of its era is the fact that there are comparatively few defined skills in the game <laughs> most of the skills that your character will have are ones that you come up with yourself yeah one
2: uh, one trick that todds um, used before when um uh, when running unknown armies that he explained at conception to us um indicon to us was that he puts a custom skill on each of the sheets that help to set the tone. Um, I was playing a preacher in one game that he ran that had can stand up for long periods of time
1: 20%. We could do with that for recording this.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But with 20%, I would be failing quite a bit. I think the listeners need a 20% skill and be able to listen to really long shows. (laughs) But only under the right circumstance.
1: Well, yes, I mean, this is the thing. Uh, you talk about 20% as if it's a low skill. It is. I'm well, <laughs> it is and it isn't. Because, you know, I mean, one of the things that, that's you know, very carefully defined in the Unknown Army's rules is the fact that there are very few circumstances under which you roll your skill. There's a fantastic example that someone gave in a forum at some stage, which I love quoting at the gaming table. You're playing a character who is a sushi chef. You make sushi all day, every day, you're quite good at it. But you don't necessarily have that higher skill in making sushi. Uh, you, you perhaps have a skill level of 30%, maybe 40. For your day-to-day work, you know, turning up to work, making sushi, you know, all day, you don't make a roll. You know, you just do that automatically. You know, and this is your profession, you know how to do it, you just make the sushi. One day you discover that a local gang boss is coming into your restaurant and, you know, is expecting you to make really good sushi for him. You are feeling under a bit of pressure. He turns up there, he's got a couple of his goons, you know, he sits down and he looks at you and says, you had better make me some damn good sushi today. That's the point at which you roll against your stat, not even your skill. So if this is associated with mind, you might have a mind of, say, 60 or 70. So you've got a 60 or 70% chance there. Where the skill comes in is, you know, one of his goons comes over, pulls out a gun, points it up to up to your ear, up to your head, and says, "You will make the best sushi now that you ever made in your life, or I will blow your fucking brains out."
2: And I want it made with fugu.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's the point at which you roll your thirty or forty percent skill. In some respects, it's almost like, yeah, you know, the uh, the hard and extreme difficulty levels in Call of Cthulhu. One specific example of when you should be making skill rolls is combat though. Mm -hmm. In combat you're always rolling against the skill. The idea is that if you're in combat you're acting under extreme pressure and so you know nothing should ever be easy for you. Now the approach to to combat in Unknown Armies is eccentric and divisive. I mean it's significant that the chapter on combat begins with a polemic. Uh, It's the, the first page of it is this essay that's sort of about the futility of violence and the fact that, you know, it's your last resort by the time you've got to the stage where it's you and this other guy, you know, who is another human being, who has a mother and people who care about him, and the two of you have got to the stage where you're trying to stab each other with rusty knives, how the hell did you get to this stage? And so that sort of sets the tone. By playing every role playing game that you've ever played. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> but 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 I, I think the point is that, you know, and Tynes, when they were writing this, were critiquing that. The you know, the idea that, you know, violence is an expected outcome or an expected turn of events in role playing games. The fact that role playing characters are quick to try to resolve their their problems by, you know, shooting someone or stabbing someone. You know, a, an ordinary person in that situation just would not even consider that. But my theory is that the game mechanics that support combat in this, from what I understand, you know, part of it was that they actually looked at the way, you know, a lot of police reports and the way that gunfights worked and, and knife fights and tried to work out, you know, a way of modelling this so that you actually... You know, ended up with the dice giving you the same kind of events as you get in a real fight. Um, but at the same time, you know, the, the the result of that is that the mechanics are so fucking tedious to engage with at this stage that, if anything, that puts me off combat in Unknown Armies more than that essay does. Because you know, you get to the stage where you've got two characters who are trying to, you know, have a punch up or worse, a gunfight. You end up with this situation where it's just swing miss, swing miss, swing miss, swing miss, swing miss, swing dead.
2: Yeah, the minute you land a hit, especially in a gunfight, you're dead. Hmm. Guns are remarkably powerful. Yeah,
1: right. but but there is nothing. For me, that is... There's an expectation, I think, because of the the fact that role-playing games came out of skirmish games. There is an expectation that combat should be fun in games. For me, there is nothing entertaining about the combat system in Unknown Armies. It goes through an interesting method of trying to replicate realism in a particular fashion. It's a very well-written series of rules, and it reads well. And, yeah, you know, I think... But you're making it,
0: it sound like it's not much fun to play.
1: No. I, I I think that is its design goal, and it achieves that design goal. But, yeah, it, it is, you know, in no way entertaining to play. It's not
0: selling it to me. <laughs> I, I just, whenever I get into combat in U A, I I either have a gun or run. That's it. So the combat system is somewhat complex and arcane, but the rest of the, the game, I mean, it, it runs a lot smoother.
1: Yeah, I... Well,
0: that doesn't sound very confident.
1: Well... <laughs> There are some very interesting things about the Unknown Army's mechanics. Uh, the whole thing uses nothing but percentile rolls. And, you know, for example, in combat, you know, you make a single percentile roll that tells you not only whether you hit, but also the amount of damage you do. Uh, you have opposed rolls that, again, you know, are just a single roll, and you see who gets the highest value but still under their skill. There are then some fairly, you know ambitious dice tricks that go on. So there's the idea that matched successes and matched failures have got particular outcomes you know, when you're using martial arts or magic. So if you
0: roll 66 or 88 or whatever... yeah.
1: It's the, the way I looked at it, when you, when you think of it statistically,
2: it's the likelihood of where you have a critical fumble or a critical success. Um, you are going to get more opportunity to have a critical success the higher your skill goes versus critical failure the higher the skill goes will be less. At the top, and they're represented by the matched numbers
0: on the dice. Whether it's a success or fail, and are these kind of gimmicks with the dice? Do, do you feel they add something to the game? I do, Scott. You don't? Yeah, look so sure. I,
1: I, I'm not quite so sold. Um, I, I think in the interest of trying to make it streamlined and quick and get it down to one roll, it's made it perversely quite fiddly in that you've got all these you know little additional hidden options in there. And I don't find that uh, I don't find it makes the game any more fun to play, and I find yeah it, it just puts the complexity somewhere else. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sold. I, I don't hugely dislike it, but it does nothing to particularly sell me on the game either.
2: I, I quite like it as a nice little quirk. It's something that separates it from other games where it's just here's your critical success range at the bottom, here's your critical fumble range at the top. It's yeah. to have it just differently represented I thought was a nice little quirk.
1: Yeah, but I mean, that's just one part of it. I mean, you've still got you know zero, one being a critical success. Mm-hmm. You've still got double zero 0 being a fumble. Mm-hmm. So it's like a mixture of all these things. And I, I don't know, it, it just ends up feeling kind of muddy and, and unnecessarily confused to me.
0: What would you say the rules focus on and, and bring out in the game to, to good effect? The big, the big
2: one for me and i i would like this to be used in other games because i think it's a, it's a work of art is the sanity meter
0: oh okay that's one that i've heard quite a lot about i mean i've played a bit of ua but that that's the one that i heard when it first came out i think that was where the parallel and the comparisons with call of cthulhu were coming in and people were saying oh you know we could play this with call of mm-hmm. cthulhu because the, the madness meters are so much more engaging than the sanity scale yeah yeah i
2: think if i remember right from hearing some of the um, development commentary that this is an idea that they were going to carry at least in some form over to delta green but do you want to say a bit about how the Madness Meters work? Yeah, it's it's essentially, in Cthulhu you've got anything will chip away at
0: your blob of sanity. Yeah, so whether it's it's um, something occult or mythos or mm-hmm. just real world uh, terrible mutilation. Yeah. It will just take away a, a, a different sized chunk
2: out of your blob of sanity. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Unknown Armies, certain things will drive you nuts. So it will categorise them as whether it's an unnatural check, which is pretty much what most mythos encounters would be, um, whether it's a violence check, which is something that, well, as it says on the tin, you've seen a gra- an act of graphic violence either on you or somewhere else. Or, uh-huh, you, per- so. or
1: you performed one.
2: Yeah, true. Um, or the other three are a little
0: harder Yeah, I was to reading down. these last night. These three are a little more tricky yeah. to, to get your head around. Self
2: is where... You've essentially pushed, um, you've been pushed into a situation or you've stepped over a line that you didn't want to cross, that this is something that you've drawn a line in the sand and you've done something that you say, I can't live with myself for doing that. It's like me me would be selling a book, for example. That was a self-check for me.
1: (laughs) Um, I parted with a thousand of them a few weeks ago. But but, yeah, betraying someone you love, that kind of thing. Yeah,
2: exactly. Um, Isolation, a bit easy to understand, but can be applied in lots of different circumstances where you are in a completely alien environment where you've got no connection to anything around you and you are almost, I'm trying to avoid saying the word helpless because that's the last one,
1: yeah. but
2: where you are so disconnected from everything.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not just, say, being put in solitary confinement. It could be somewhere like something like being in a place where you know, no one speaks English. Uh,
0: but we're talking and, something strong enough to actually cause a sanity check uh, we're well, not sure that's what' it's called uh, but yeah but but it's the uh, idea that, more than that surely. You,
1: well it, this is a weird one because it's not something that happens immediately it's not sort of you you, you find yourself in downtown Tokyo you know you, you don't hear any English being spoken around you and you feel isolated uh, you know, it, it's, it's not something that happens immediately it's just sort of, you know, you go through your day, you haven't you heard a single conversation, you understand you haven't managed to speak to a single person and it's gradually wearing you down Okay. Yeah, that,
2: that would be something that would, would hit me, because this is one of the reasons why I don't travel to countries where I don't speak the lingo, the concept of going to somewhere like, say even like Paris for example, I can't speak French I would literally feel like a fish out of water, I would be panicking quite badly in that kind of environment and, what, and you mentioned the last one is helplessness. Yes. Um, that is, as it says on the tin. But, again, can be taken in lots of different circumstances. It's where you are completely incapable of being able to do anything to affect the world around you, to protect the people you love, to do anything, essentially.
1: Yeah, I mean, it could be you've know, been kidnapped, you know, uh, something like that, uh, you know, you're being held hostage, um, or, you know, as you say, it could just be, you know, you're faced with a situation you don't understand and can't affect and feel absolutely helpless and powerless in the face of it. So we've
0: got these five flavours of sanity, if you like, mm-hmm. and each one of those is more complex than just a sliding scale like the sanity rating in Call of Cthulhu. Very So what happens so. with each one of those? You have ten boxes that you
2: can, uh, can fill in. You have what they call hardened notches and failed notches. Each check that you make has got a certain rank. Like, for instance, a deep one has a D6, a Shoggoth has a D20. They would be different ranks. So you stand more to lose, potentially. So there's little things and there's big things. Yeah, okay, will, minor yeah. and major yeah. shocks to the system. Every time you make one of these checks, you either get a hardened notch or a failed notch, with some caveats. If it's a rank above however many hardened notches you've got, you get a hardened notch. You basically become a little bit more resistant to this shit. It's like being punched in the the nose. A boxer, if they're getting hit hit in the nose every time, would be making rank two violence checks all the time, in theory, if you hadn't got this rule in there. This means that they they become hardened, to
0: it. They become desensitised to it. Right, so like you were saying, like Scott's example of being punched in the face, once you've made a few violence checks, being punched in the face isn't going to bother you, mm-hmm. it's not going to damage your sanity, It's it, you know you take some damage, yes. physical damage, yeah. but it's not you, you're kind of mm-hmm. hardened to it. Yeah, and in the Cthulhu equivalent
2: you've seen 50 Deep Ones, you don't need to make a check anymore. Yeah. But you see a Shoggoth and you, could, you lose your shit.
1: Okay, yeah. It's it's worth stating that, you know, whether or not you get a hardened or a failed notch depends on whether you pass the equivalent of a sanity roll. Mm -hmm. So you make a, under these circumstances, if you don't have enough hardened notches to protect you from this stimulus, you make a mind roll. You roll against your mind stat. Mm -hmm. If you pass, then you get a hardened notch. If you fail, you get a failed notch. So I
0: get what hardened notches do. They kind of, they harden you against Mm -hmm. whatever the the stimulus is. What about a failed notch? What does that do for you? (laughs) Two things. Um, one, as soon as you hit five of them, that's it, you're
2: crazy. But any five in one category. You can have them spread out across all of them, that's not a problem. The minute you fill up all five in one particular category, like all five failed uh, violence, five failed unnatural, that's it,
0: you've gone batshit crazy. And is that temporarily flipping out? or No, that's permanent. That's
1: like zero hand. Uh-huh. Yeah, the other thing is that you know, the, these failed notches represent a degree of sensitivity to that stimulus. So, for example, you know, let's say you had only one or two notches in, you know, hardened notches in uh, violence, but you had three or four uh, failed notches in, in violence. You might be really sensitive to you know, the sight of blood, or you mm-hmm. might not be able to watch a violent film on TV or something like that. Just the idea of violence freaks you the fuck out.
2: Conversely, though, as well, it's not necessarily a good thing to have a whole load of hardened notches because when you get to 30 hardened notches across the board, congratulations, you're a sociopath. You are completely hardened by everything around you.
1: And in game mechanical terms, that stops you being an avatar, because you are no longer connected enough to the you know, human emotions, the human world. You, you don't have that human connection anymore. You know, you're so hardened inside that you can no longer channel being an avatar. I think mm. it
2: pretty much takes you out as a PC at that point as well, because you almost become, um, to a degree, Hannibal Lecter. Mm. You are completely playing by your own set of rules.
0: What kind of games would you say Unknown Armors is good for? Is it good for one-offs, campaigns? I mean, both. What what kind of things would you use it for most? My gut reaction, I'd say both.
1: Yeah, I've used it for both. Um, I tend to use it a lot more for one-shots. I've run a lot of convention games of Unknown Armors. And that's
0: kind of street level because it's easy to buy into? Uh,
1: Yeah, Usually. I've run a few campaigns as well, and the campaigns tend to be fun too. Um, yeah, apart from anything else, I really like Unknown Armies at global level, and you know, running campaigns for that tends to be a lot easier.
0: And would you take the system to use for other
2: settings? Very much so. Normally, it's my go-to mechanic when I come to a, um, when I come
0: to a game. That I don't like the inherent mechanics that are published with that game. Oh, we've all got something that we do that with, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so you'd turn to Unknown Armies. Yeah, as, as a good generic one. Um, right. The main one I, I did it for at the local club was with Edge, Edge of Midnight.
2: I think that is an amazing setting, but my God, the mechanics suck donkey dick. They are really bad. <laughs> and that's why when I ran it, I ran, ran it with UA.
1: Okay. Whereas, I'm the other way around. I've used other mechanics for running the Unknown Army's background. I, I've converted a number of my one-shots to use Hot War, and I've tended to use that. And recently I played a short campaign that Tom Pleasant ran, uh, where he used Hill Focus the system. Uh, and that worked really well. And wrapping up our discussion, here's a quick overview of the published material. We've said
0: that it's been through two editions and potentially there's going to be a third. What other published material is there?
1: Well, there have been a hell of a lot of uh, supplements for this. Um, I, I think there were about ten published all in all. These vary from There are a few books that outline some of the cabals we've talked about. So you know, there's a book that outlines the New Inquisition. There's a book that outlines the Sleepers. Um, there's a book that outlines Mac Attacks. Oh yeah, these are all really good. There's um, a couple that give you more options for uh, depths and avatars. And then there are some fantastic books of uh, scenarios.
2: As I say, one of the other nice things about the titles of the books is they're quite evocative. Like, Lawyer's Guns and Money for the New Inquisition Shorts book taken from Warren Zevon. Because, yeah, the shit has hit the fan if they turn up. Um, Hush Hush for the Sleepers. Um, yeah, they're just, they just—they are quite tongue-in-cheek,
1: in a way. Yeah, and they—the the published scenarios have generally been outstanding. There's one particular collection of one-shots, which contains what may be my favourite published role-playing scenario, uh, which is Greg Stolze's Jailbreak. Mm. I've run this a number of times at conventions in the club. It's a situation, it's a really bad situation in which a number of characters find themselves. You get pre-gens who are all tied in with the situation, and it's basically a bunch of criminals uh, on the run from a jailbreak that have ended up seeking shelter in a hailstorm in this farmhouse in the middle of nowhere, mm-hmm. and you are holding the occupants there hostage. Th- things go steadily weirder and badder as it goes on, and... I mean, this, this scenario was a hell of an influence on, well, everything I've written since then. It really showed me how you can have a you know, fairly traditional role-playing scenario that is open-ended, that has no expectations of how things will wrap up, that has a really strong situation, uh, and, you know, it requires very minimal... Yeah, there's nothing, in fact, really, in terms of a plot or a story in there. It's just sort of, you know, here's the location, here are the NPCs, here's the opening situation, see what happens. Like the blue touch paper and retire. Yeah.
0: And new material is being written by
1: fans, me published in the magazine Proto-Dimension. Yeah, Proto-Dimension's been running for quite a few years now, and they, they, they don't just publish unknown armies material. They do Call of Cthulhu, they do... Yeah, a dark whole range dark of stuff. Is another yeah, one Dark do lot Conspiracy lot of, yeah. is the main mm. one they do. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, they've published a lot of really good stuff over the years.
0: Including one by yourself, Scott, I believe. Uh, yes, yeah. Lamposts in Bloom, which I think I had the pleasure of playing the first run of at the club a long time ago. Yes, yeah, you probably did. Yeah, that was a that was a lot of fun.
2: I remember, yeah, I played it. I remember the um, sizzling burger with deep venom on the barbecue in the first
1: scene. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah that's, that's, that's a great... Um, a great one-shot. And I think, did you say it's been translated into German?
1: Did uh, I dream yes. that? Yes. No, no, I think it has been, actually. Yeah, we remember, do have
0: some listeners in Germany, that's why I'm mentioning it.
1: No, I, I remember stumbling across uh, some fanzine, uh, online you know, zine uh, that, that was published in German that had a translation of Lampos and Bloom in it, which delighted me. Hmm. Yeah, it was completely unauthorised, but I'm not fussed. <laughs>
0: Uh, that's, that's a hell of an emotional ride. That's an attitude which has changed, folks, in case you're thinking of taking <laughs> Scott's material. <laughs> he will sue you now.
1: As well as Proton, I mentioned, there are a couple of other fan sources uh, for Unknown Armies which are still live, if, if not actually that lively. There's the unknownarmies.com website, which has got a lot of fan creative resources on it, so that's you know scenarios, new avatars, new adept schools,
2: items like another one of yours, um, the <laughs> Russociani.
1: Oh yes, <laughs> God yes, I've forgotten that. Yeah, yes, uh, wrote a little bit on the, the secret history of the Rissussian, uh CPR doll. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the the Anon Army's website is is absolutely fantastic, and it's not actually updated that much anymore, but you know th- there's a wealth of material on there. And there's an Unknown army's mailing list as well, uh, which again, it, it, it used to be very high traffic. Now you'll get the occasional burst of activity on it, but it's still really worth paying attention to.
0: What's a mailing list, Grandad?
2: Oh. It's where there's a high concentration of weird shit that comes into your email. Does it, does
0: it use that e- email thing? <laughs> no, not so What's much email, these days, <laughs> Uh, dear. It's is it like owl... instant messenger? And <laughs> It's where the owl comes in and delivers a letter to you and then flies oh, off yeah. again.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and Scott will include links to all these things in the in the episode notes, won't you, Scott?
1: I will if Paul reminds me. <laughs> I Why think didn't Matt have to do anything here? <laughs> what? Oh,
0: me, me and social media and anything like that. Well, one thing we've learned tonight is there's been a lot to say about Unknown Armies.
1: Fucking hell, yeah! Just I, a bit. <laughs> I, I don't have a voice anymore. Apologies to everyone. Yeah, my voice has been steadily dying as the episode has gone on, and yeah, I, if I, I think the others are going to have to take me outside and shoot
2: me now. I just, just spend a few. i have just spend a few points in your avatar, the um, the mime. <laughs>
0: we'll be taking you out and shooting you at dawn, soon, Scott. I think. <laughs> <laughs> What's that coming
2: over the hill? Here's the sun.
0: <laughs> An interesting game, then. With a lot of I don't know unique features, it, it seems to be very much a game of its own.
1: Yeah, it doesn't really fit into any nice neat categories, and that's one of the things I like about it. People tend to call it a horror game, and it can be. People see it as a sort of postmodern version of Mage. It can be. You can play something very much like Neverwhere or American Gods with it.
0: So it's quite hard to give the elevator pitch for what it's about.
1: Really, yeah. It, it, Depending on the approach you take, it can be any number of different things.
2: Oh, I love it. Uh, alongside Cthulhu Seventh, I'd say it's those. Those two are my two favourite games. I say UA and Seventh blow anything
0: else out of the water for me. They, there is such a big division between that and anything else. The one thing that's put me off is the fact that humans are very. It's very much all about humans and the, and the humans' power.
2: Oh, I... I, I That's
0: what you really like, Matt. Yeah, I come at that completely the other way. I love it, the fact that
2: humanity did everything. The big phrase that's stamped on a few of the books is, you did it. It. Nothing
1: else, just you. And, yeah, for me, that is actually deeply horrific because humans are really fucked up things. There is no shortage of weirdness or evil or just strangeness that can come out of humanity.
0: Well, shall we leave the listeners with that wonderful thought for the day, Scott? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> well, we've probably talked for long enough about Unknown Armies.
1: We're very happy to blame all of you who said on your survey responses that you wanted longer shows. So, yeah, this is your fault.
2: And hey, it's, to be fair, there's a hell of a lot more we could have talked about.
0: This is clearly one of your favourites, Matt. Oh, I can, I can yes. tell that by the way you talk about it.
1: Yeah. yeah, you could have talked for more about it. I don't have enough voice left.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'll like, I, I just nod a lot at this point. <laughs> so if you do go to conventions, then you might want to run some Unknown Armies so Matt can play in your game because he would be eternally grateful.
2: Please, I normally end up running it. I want to play it.
1: And we have a new Patreon becker to thank. Yeah, big thanks to Ed Possing. Indeed, thank you very much, Ed. Yes, thank you, Ed. And we, we hope we, we're pronouncing your name correctly. Or um, well, are the
2: Pauls pronouncing the name correctly? Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I do my
1: best. My apologies if I've got it wrong.
0: But I'm just reading it off the uh, the internet, so, you know, I don't even know how to pronounce Aeon, so what, can I, what do I know? Aeon, <laughs> what's the matter with Aeon? But speaking of all things Patreon... Yeah, we have a new idea for uh, backers.
1: Thank you, Matt. <laughs> can, can you add some sound effects behind that? <laughs> make, I, make, I, I, I <laughs> make it sound awesome.
0: I don't think man can improve on that. I <laughs> I'm uh, like my random noises. <laughs> something uh, I think we've had in the back of our minds for a while, I've had in the back of my mind for a while, was uh, an over-ambitious project of doing some kind of fanzine-type product. But... I never really wanted to go the whole deal and actually put out a fanzine and charge money for it and, you know, be regular and all that sort of thing, which, you know, how many fanzines are actually regular. But uh, I just sort of thought it'd be nice to do it for the backers. It's a limited number. We produce it. We're not having to do it and then kind of sell it. We're just doing it for fun and, you know, doing however we want to do it. Um, And and hopefully other people will enjoy it, too.
1: And for those of you who don't know what a fanzine yeah, is... Yeah, go, Scott. Tell yes, I, I was about to say, you know, look for an old person and ask him. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to leave him with it's going to use modern
2: cutting edge design from the 80s. Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah, I, both Paul and I are old enough to actually remember the heyday of fanzines. And we're talking about these little A5 or sometimes A4 booklets, uh, which... <laughs> Had tended to have pretty awful typography, um, pretty badly reproduced line art. Um, the the uh, the layout in it was manually cut and pasted. You're yeah. really selling it. I'll give you that now. Uh, I, yeah, it's all about the content, Matt. The content, which was pretty shit as well. Generally, never mind that. <laughs> But but we'll do what we can with, with producing interesting content for this. But we are going to go old school with the layout. This is going to be done manually. I, I can see Matt dying inside. But that's enough about the exciting layout. Let's talk about what's actually going to be in there. Yeah, I think one of the things that uh, I'd like to do is put a scenario in that the three of us could collaborate on.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: so something fairly basic. I mean, this won't be a, a fully fledged scenario. I mean, perhaps you know a location and some plot seeds and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, I think so. The kind of thing I would sit, or we would all sort of sit down and happily run from, but not something that we would, you know, well, I say polished. If our work is polished, not something that is kind of fully finished and fully rounded out like it would be for publication. But um, almost somewhere between a skeleton and a corpse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hold on, I'm agreeing with that statement. <laughs> Um, and uh, a few uh, look-backs at old shows, uh, maybe revisiting some of the themes that we've uh, talked about in shows, and saying you know what we thought about it or how it was recording some of the early shows and where the show and where the show came from. You think yeah. my memory goes back that far?
1: <laughs> and of course, we've got to have some kind of reminiscence of the shed. Yes, indeed, indeed to the shed. <laughs> yeah. Poor
2: mold, we miss you.
1: We mentioned this in the context of Patreon, so the idea is this is going to be the next Patreon stretch goal. In fact, I think it already is the next Patreon stretch yeah, goal. Yeah, I've put
0: it up at $75, um, and at, at time of recording we're at about $57, so um, it's not a million miles off, uh, and it's something that, like like we said, will only go out to backers.
1: Yeah. We're planning on sending it out with the Christmas cards we send out at, well, Christmas. Yeah. We should really turn
2: that on its head and send them out at Easter or something
1: so oh by the way folks if you are a backer and
0: you're on the one dollar one you so far you wouldn't have been asked to put in your shipping address uh so if you want to go back and put that in um otherwise i won't know where to send it that about wraps up for tonight i think so it's good night from me cheerio from me and farewell from me
1: For